Hey, hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. We got there in the end. Yeah, I'm terribly sorry about the confusion and the ineptitude on my part. I appear to have sent you a link that would never have worked, which is really not very good, is it? <laughs> That's no problem at all. Oh, the perils, the perils of Zoom. Or indeed, you know being inept <laughs> i think i think really that's the that's the key thing about this how are you in farrington i'm very well john jacob yes it's nice nice to meet you oh. i've not i don't think we've ever met in person have no we? we haven't no but your name is legend oh in what way <laughs> well we'll come on to that uh, <laughs> yes, uh, how's no, it I've, I've always I've, I've always enjoyed reading your oh. your online um blogs oh over now these. i now i feel suddenly naked <laughs> You're writing from from the gut, and I think that's very refreshing. Yeah, no, it's true. I'm mean, sorry, that gut makes sense. Wow, heavy. wow, what a what a lovely way to describe someone's creative output. <laughs> you know, it's 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 great because it's so it's so refreshing. Um, well, that's very nice of you to say. Yeah, uh, particularly in our world, which is rather hope-based. Yes, know. absolutely. Um, uh, well, that's very nice. I didn't set out to do that, really. It's not like it's an editorial strategy, really. It's just mm. like, I don't know what else to say. So I'll say this. That's, that's essentially... That's essentially... All Thoroughly Good Podcasties are special, of course, and for a variety of different reasons. Some have something specific they need to talk about, something they need to sell. Others are people whose output goes before them, and these are the especially fascinating individuals, not that we're grading people, but they are, and they are the people whose name emerges in other conversations. It's their music that triggers connections in the brain, and for this podcast at least, they're individuals whose music usually poses one very pressing question in my mind. Does the person behind the music bear some resemblance to the music they create? Is there a connection between the emotional experience triggered by that composer's work and the composer themselves? It's not the sort of question one can necessarily ask an individual during an interview, not without things potentially getting a little existential or otherwise awkward. I didn't ask the question of composer, arranger, pianist and transcriber in Farrington in this podcast because I didn't need to. His new album, Gershwinicity, out on the Somme label, is a tribute to the work of George Gershwin, taking some of the great man's finest melodies and setting them in a Farrington-esque world brimming with Technicolor orchestrations, jaunty beats and a sleight of hand that leaves the rest of us breathless. It's a similar thing with Farrington's other creation from the past 12 months, Beethoveniana. The season opener for a curtailed BBC Brom season in 2020 featured locked down musicians from the BBC's performing groups in a multi-genre infused medley of Beethoven's symphonic output. It is seven minutes of pure musical joy I find difficult to watch now without crying just a little bit. 
It's music that had an impact at a point in time when the world was confusing and frightening. Something I cared deeply about wasn't going to happen in the way that I'd experienced it for my entire life. A fixture in the calendar wasn't going ahead in the way I expected it to. Musicians and dancers stepped in to make a musical statement that sought to compensate, inspired by the anniversary of Western music's greatest export. In so doing, they created a moment that captured a feeling, framing it in musical and emotional language expressed by isolated musicians and dancers defiantly doing what they do. Twelve months later, Farrington's music, music which incidentally, if I was a teenager, I would insist my county youth orchestra conductor programmed for a residential course, that music reminds me of that moment, the emotions I experienced the first time I watched it. And it has, in the ensuing months, become music that signposts a moment in time. It is, therefore, dangerous music. Quite some achievement, especially given the time it took to write, record and film. So first, uh, first things first, what can you see out of your nearest window, please, Mr. Farrington, sir? What can I see out of my nearest window? Well, the railway line, the, oh. the, the great north railway line that goes all the way up from London, King's Cross to uh, Edinburgh. Right. It's a, bit, it's, a, it's a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? It's sort of slightly oversold, the great, the great north line. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think it's the Great Northern Railway. Um, right. I've, always, I've always experienced the Great Northern Railway to be slightly disappointing and less than <laughs> great. That's... The best bit The best bit up is just up, as you probably know, when you get beyond Berwick and you're, going, you're crawling along the coast uh, up to Edinburgh and it's just remarkable what the Victorians did with their ridiculous um, railway planning right next to the scenic route. Uh, and uh, it's stunning. That last bit is stunning. Last hour. They knew what they were doing. They they just knew what they were doing. Didn't Absolutely. They? Um, now the other thing that's really important is that I need to know. Uh, I'm. I have to just point out the arrangement of the scores on the piano. Is that is that set dressing or is that just Me? like here, yeah here yeah? Oh God, no! I I just haven't tied it up. <laughs> it, looks, <laughs> no. it looks rather delightful. No, uh, no. this this all, all of this. Um, these are all um, transcriptions of um, jazz pianists. pianists. Um, there's Art Tatum, Oscar Peterson, and Bill Evans, and um, Keith Jarrett, or, uh, Dave Brubeck at the bottom. And then we've got here stuff I'm working on, so uh, or have been working on bits of Gershwin and whatnot, and, and same the other side. And they're just... Um, they just end up there, you know. What that—that's that. The middle pile is is entertainment value in between work. <laughs> so yeah, I haven't planned it, John. No, it's, it's by coincidence, really. That's that's the way it's. And 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 actually, and here on the on the piano is a piece that I'm writing. So, so this is all. Yeah, this is 
this is musical life as it exists at the moment. It's for me. a great question because you'd be you probably won't be surprised to learn it does really yield quite a lot of information. Uh, oh, so you know, and right. you don't realise that you've basically been tricked into answering the question, <laughs> which is great. Uh, but the the pile of the pile of music, the the transcriptions in the middle of jazz yes. artists are they transcriptions that you've done or that other no, people no. Have done? Right. No, they're all they're all standard publications um, from over the years of of uh, of all the the jazz greats and well i've just listed a few and there's andre previn in there bud powell um there's not actually that much published material there's far less published material than there are recordings um and i have done quite a few transcriptions for my own benefit but they take a while you know and so if you can just buy what, what, I, don't, what I don't necessarily understand is uh which you can possibly help me with is that Jazz is about improvisation. Why would you want to transcribe it when it is about the moment? Am I missing something here? I may be. No, not at all. Um, you you get to know. So I suppose when I think of music as being made up of four or five really key elements, which is melody and harmony and rhythm and structure, and then the fifth being um, emotional content, whatever that may be. It's a little bit amorphous. And... You know, when you listen to something, and of course, it's a, it's an amazing experience listening to jazz improvisation. Mm -hmm. And there's so much going on that actually, you know, to take the time to work out what is that chord that they're playing? And what exactly are they getting onto rhythmically here? And if you're coming from a classical background like I am, you're having to think, well, actually, how would I write that down? And you can't get a completely accurate version of what they played. But what you can get is you can get the essence of it and you can get, as I say, that the, the melodic riffs, the um, the way that they're using certain runs, particularly on the piano, um, the, the, the spacing of a chord on, on a piano is really important. Um, in fact, not just on the piano, but jazz generally, it's, it's about the voicing and, you know, the way they voice certain added chords, particularly in the, in the, in the sort of the middle of the left hand is such a key part of the sound of a, of a particular jazz pianist or any jazz musician um and you learn so much just by writing it down and because they didn't write down a, a lot of this stuff and you're having to uh notate it yourself you learn so much um in a way that you couldn't necessarily by ear you can learn by ear a lot and a lot of them do but but by writing it down it becomes a type of a new type of theory and one that I've always been really fascinated by. excites me is the idea that you've got a whole bank of musicians who who are sort of who bring their musicianship to the keyboard and express it in the moment through mm. improvisation then you've got a other an, uh, a whole other bank of musicians like yourself who approach that and go we need to deconstruct that i want to deconstruct it i want to find out all the detail i want to find yeah. out how it works um, are there many people around, <laughs> sound like an insult, are there many people around like you, Ian? Do you know, I don't really know. Oh, I don't, oh how, I lonely. Don't, how lonely, how lonely it must be. 
There probably are, but you don't meet them because you, you're, you're the only person who's necessarily doing it. Um, I think if you work in a, in a jazz group, then everybody contributes. And um, for example, there's a wonderful uh, group that, that has done a recording of, uh, actually not just this, they've done a recording of a, a jazz version, big band version of uh, Peter and the Wolf. And they've also done Carnival of the Animals and all sorts of things. And they're a French uh, big band um, and they're called the Amazing Keystone Band. That's their, that's their name. How modest. And they're just wonderful. They are fantastic. And um, I think a lot of them contribute to the arrangements. So it's not just one person. It's the pianist and it's the bass player and it's the sax player and so on. And in that case, it's, it's a collective. But um, when you think back to uh, the bands of the past, whether it was Billy, Billy Strayhorn working with Duke Ellington and, you know, it was just the two of them really who would be writing down what they could write down and then that would be their band's chart and then the band would make it their own. Um, so I don't know, you don't really come across, I don't really come across other people working in that sort of particular niche. Um, I know certain people who do a lot of reduced arrangements. That's much more common now and I've done a lot of that. Um, but that's a completely different process because all the notes are already there and you're just having to try and create the same, same sort of sound world with fewer players. And it's a different skill set. It makes me think of, um, uh, this may, this will say, seem a bit weird, it makes me think of Bartok uh, and how those composers at the end of the 19th century were travelling the continent. Um, I hope I've got the centuries right. Um, travelling the continent, recording stuff. Mm. and notating stuff and whilst yes. i realize that, that a lot of this stuff is recorded anyway so the documentation of it isn't necessarily as important the the motivation for for transcribing it is um is sort of similar it's sort of it's for yeah. prosperity and a deeper understanding and appreciation well absolutely and and i think that in a way some people i don't think it's pretentious to say that for some people uh, jazz in its purest form and earliest form was a kind of folk music because it wasn't written down and, and people were coming from all over the place to that melting pot in New Orleans and then it spread and they went to Chicago and then they went to New York and it spread across the country. And then through the dissemination of recordings, it became a kind of folk art, a, 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 an art that wasn't written down and, and differed every time it was performed. And um, in, in the same way that folk songs were different every time they were performed by different people, even the words, of course. Um, and I find that just uh, so fascinating and, and almost an endless resource, a musical resource to, that we can draw on and, and all of us can draw on. It's not, thankfully, um, it's not specific to an era and a type of um, musician. I think that we can all explore it and take what we want from it. Do you consider yourself uh, a jazz musician, uh, a jazz composer, no. or a historian? Oh, no. <laughs> a historian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, that, that historian is something, something altogether different. Um, no, I don't think I'm, I'm... I'm not a jazz musician because I think to be a genuine jazz musician, you are somebody who... Uh, your way of making music is improvising and you, you will compose... You compose, but then you will constantly improvise on it. And that's not what I do generally. I improvise 
and I have improvised in concerts and I improvise in at, when I'm writing uh, and that creates a type of sound world which I then notate. So it's more, it's, I, I think jazz, jazz composing is, is certainly something that it's, that some of my pieces come close to and some of my arrangements come close to is trying to create the jazz sound and, and evoke the sound world of jazz musicians. And I've worked with jazz musicians and I've written arrangements for them uh, and it can work joining these different backgrounds together and these different genres that we've, we've come to. But, um, and I'd certainly always wanted to discover more about jazz, but it's not my background. And so I couldn't say that I'm doing anything more than um, learning as much as I can and, and imitating and trying to become as much of I, as I can of that genre while not being part of it. You're a fraud. That's what you're saying, you're a fraud. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one because, you know, that people can get territorial about these things. And, um, and the, the important thing is to, is to say what you are and what you aren't. And that's why whenever people say, well, I am this, uh, it's 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 a bit dangerous actually. Yeah, you you risk you risk offending. You risk losing the room if you. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, and 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 that's the, that's always the danger with with labels, of course, isn't it? With any sort of label in 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 the arts and in music, uh, is you know these 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 it's it's so difficult because I suppose we need labels because it's useful. It's a useful shorthand. But then, of course, they fall down very quickly in certain cases. It's very easy if you're if you're a Beethoven specialist and you're, you you play lots of Beethoven on the on the piano, and that's what you do. That's that's a very easy label to do. But but imagine what uh, their lives are like. I mean, well, yeah, yeah, nothing exactly. but Beethoven. Oh God! Oh no! Oh, it must be so heady and so yeah, rich. And yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. do they not cry out for Haydn? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> But then you, but then again, you see there are there are other musicians who do a whole mix of things, and um, it's this interesting thing about things like what is an opera? Hmm. You know, is is the magic flute an opera when half of it's spoken, more than half of it's spoken? Um, same as Fidelio, and and all these sorts of things where where we, we use labels and and you know, an opera singer is 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 this, but then hang on, what if they're singing? With a microphone, are they still an opera singer? When Bryn Terville sings Sweeney Todd, which is a musical, is he suddenly a musical singer or is he still an opera singer singing, you know, ah, oh, labels?
what do you find yourself drawn to then? What is it that you're trying to capture when you're transcri- when you're when you're sourcing this data from transcriptions uh, and then sort of reversioning it or imitating it? What what do you think that you are drawn to? What are you capturing? Well, I really love that sound world, I suppose, of the mid 20th century in uh, jazz and popular music where you had people like Ella Fitzgerald who were chart musicians, ultimately. They they were just before the rock and roll revolution and the the arrival of the Beatles and so on and, and, and all, all that changed the mid 20th century. And you had people going back, you had people like Benny Goodman who were again chart toppers and and Artie Shaw and, and Ellington and so on. And what they were doing was they were creating popular music, but they were creating popular music that was so harmonically brilliant and inventive and subtle and beautiful and emotionally rich. And um, and I think I'd love to recapture that with, with not everything I do, but with certain things that I do in, in particularly this, this album that we've made, I want to recapture those interpretations that people had of Gershwin songs, not just Gershwin, the, the, the whole of the Great American Songbook, which really bring out so many elements of the song that you wouldn't necessarily have heard in their first guise when they were performed um, by people like Fred Astaire in films or um, Ethel Merman on the stage. And, you know, they, they were, the arrangers particularly, were looking for new ways to interpret the songs and richer ways, more imaginative ways interpreting the songs, particularly when they were having to do them all in a group. So when you think about the amazing um, series that, again, Ella Fitzgerald did for Verve Records with um, Norman Grants, who was the, the amazing promoter, impresario, who, who set up the label just to record all this stuff. And he got these terrific arrangers. In, in the case of the Gershwin songbook, he got Nelson Riddle, one of the great arrangers of the day. And what Riddle made sure was that every song sounded different. If you're going to have a whole album of Gershwin, it wasn't just one. I think it was several. It was about three LPs. Um, if you're going to have that many songs in a row, they've got to be varied and they've got to sort of explore what this music might really be about. And, you know, OK, some of them will be um, super slushy and they'll be um, celestes and harps and, and lots of sweepy strings. And then some of them will just be a trio with with them. Um, piano, uh, bass and percussion. Uh, and they're all different and they are, they're all looking for ways in which the song can be brought afresh, made, made new. And I think that that's always been my approach with everything really when it comes to songs and arranging things afresh is that I want to try and not just transcribe the notes that other, another version will be that, that, that may already exist in a recording, but I want to try and find something new. And that's certainly what I've always done with Gershwin's music and um, and lots of other song composers, and not just song composers, but also uh, reinterpreting classical pieces, because I've done a certain number of, of classical arrangements where I sort of jazz them up, but, but you know, reharmonize and... Yes, and yes. I absolutely want to ask you about that. Um, because that refers rather neatly to a previous podcast and some during which someone else was 
was I think it's polite to say banging on about your abilities uh, that's what that's one of the reasons that we sort of led on to this particular podcast interview. <laughs> uh, but we'll come on to that in a bit um, I suppose hearing you talk about what you're drawn to and what you're capturing and why you're doing this I, I I wonder whether there's an element of you wanting to sort of recreate your own musical theme park and then be the only guest in it <laughs> that's a brilliant analogy isn't it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, the thing is, is that um, I've always written music. I've always composed stuff for myself because I'm a performer. And that's, although it's not at the moment, 50, 60 percent of my work. Um, it normally is. It hasn't been in the last year. It's I mean, I've had, you know, like I, you, you don't want to hear it. You, you know, everybody's probably you've probably heard enough of the soft stories of, of decimated diaries and mm. And, and work collapsed. But I don't know that. I, would, I, I don't know that it's helpful to describe them as sob stories. I, I think it's very real. It's people's livelihoods have been. Yeah. It's been really tough. It's yeah. been very tough. Um, but in it, you know, the best of times, I'm performing. Sixty uh, percent of my work is performing, I guess, and that can be, and and that's, and it used. I suppose it used to be. 80 90 percent and and it's got less as i've got more writing and arranging work and that suits me because they tie in together generally and whenever i've done concerts whether it's um solo recitals or working with the duo or with ensembles and i've done a lot over the years worked with a lot of people a lot of a lot of different musicians a lot of different singers instrumentalists and one of the things that i've always liked to do is to have uh, new arrangements of repertoire that could be anything really um, that very often comes at the end of programs as the sort of um, the dessert or the or the sweetener or they might be encores as well and so <clears throat> I've got I suppose it, it turned out when I had time in my hands last year uh, that I looked at my list of, of arrangements and it's very long <laughs> because <laughs> Because I suddenly realised I've got about, I'm giving away my age now, but I've got about 20 years worth of work um, that have just gradually accumulated over concert after concert where, you know, I would be asked by, whether it's an orchestra, whether it was, as I say, other people I've worked with, um, could you arrange this song or this piece? That'll be at the end of the concert and we want it to do this. And you go ahead and you do it. And it makes a nice impression and that's it and then of course it's <clears throat> it's done but it won't necessarily get done immediately again and and i realized with this gershwin project that i had accumulated an entire album's worth of gershwin song arrangements that had all existed as separate pieces for separate concerts all, all, all from different times and um so the thinking behind that album was that it was a way of drawing all these different arrangements together and working with two people, Peter Sparks on the clarinet and Kyle Horch on the saxophone, who I've worked with again for most of that period. Um, some of the arrangements have been for them and some of them haven't, but we've worked in lots of different groups. And, and I knew that they were just the right people for this repertoire and beyond, because we want to record, I want to record certainly a lot more of this repertoire that I've already got um it's like a back catalogue it's ridiculous uh, 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 hearing you hearing you tell me about it and I have heard it and it's gorgeous and I particularly like the last track uh that's the one that I went to first 
which probably says something about me. I don't know why I went there. That's the longest. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Well, you sound surprised. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the question that was uppermost in my mind just before then is, um, what about copyright? I mean, where, where does where does copyright yeah, sure. start and stop when when you are because you're trans well yeah where do, where does it start and stop because that's a nightmare where, where... well it, it's true that it's certainly with copyright uh i i'm never going to make any money from the performances of the arrangements um because gershwin's songs are in copyright and as are basically all of the the standard american songbook repertoire they're all in copyright so you can get permission easily to do uh, an arrangement because people do covers all the time. Every time a jazz singer stands up and plays or sings one of these songs, it's it's sort of a cover. Uh, and it's part and parcel of that genre. But I will never be able to publish them myself and, and I won't make any money from... So I can't sell them or hire them out to other people. And people do ask. You don't... Ha you seek permission. You don't have to pay copyright. And you can earn money. I mean, please tell me that you're earning money from... From potentially from the recording, otherwise this this is yeah, like a bit, one a big bit. marketing you, you, project. You were you earn money from um, your perform. I earn money from the concerts and from the performances. Yes, but but I don't earn royalties for the arrangements on on songs. But I do when it's my own arrangements of out of copyright music. Oh, this is as... this is this is all tragic. This is this is yeah. this is terribly terribly tragic. You have this skill and and this joy doing this thing, but you can't earn very much money. No, I'm now laughing true. at you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> That's awful. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Maybe it's time. No, to but you. But, but I do. It's do. not. But it's not. It's not. It's not all bad news because I get paid to do the arrangements uh, and. Um, by whoever it is who's, who's asked me to do them, and, um, and and that and they all lead the one onto the next. Okay. So I get asked to do more, right. and uh, and when I record them, you know, you get you get performance royalties for for performances, whether it's concert a, a concert fee or or a, a royalty from recordings you and do refreshments. Presumably, there must there must be somebody there at recordings or concerts providing you with refreshments, like a, exactly. like a roll, like a cheese roll or something. <laughs> I, um, the, the, the thing I want to ask you about absolutely is about the piece that I can't pronounce, uh, which is about Beethoven that you did for the proms. Beethoveniana. Yeah, it's a really difficult title. It's a really difficult title yeah, to, yeah. to type yeah. and indeed to say. Um, but <laughs> did you, um, the first thing I need to ask is when, when were you, 
when were you commissioned to write it? Uh, I think it was in May last year. Oh, so it was uh, actually a commission during the uh, after the, the the start of the first lockdown. Yes. So it was, so, it was a piece of music so that it, was framed as a as a sort of a lockdown performance. Yeah. So the the, the concept behind it was, um, as you know, as we all remember that that nobody was nobody quite knew where we were at and, and about a month into that lockdown where it turned out that it wasn't just going to be a matter of weeks um that 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 i was rung up um by the proms and they said look we we want to celebrate the beethoven we were going to have um a season full of beethoven and we've had to ditch that you know they knew then that they that, that just wasn't going to happen so so they asked and they had there were lots of zoom recordings going around at that time with people multi-tracking and they said you know we've really got to use our orchestras um because we've got to have something that that shows that we're still here and to tie that in with the beethoven anniversary they they said you know write us a five minute piece that uh encompasses as much of his symphonic world and also the stylistic breadth and variety of the proms itself uh and so i took that on and it had to be it was a very quick turnaround i think i wrote it in about two weeks um and then it was recorded in about two weeks and then they filmed it in about two weeks and then it was done and it was out you know July. um so it was it was a it was it was sort of a, a fast project but I found it a really meaningful one, actually, um, because at that point, uh, thinking about May, I think I probably sort of, I, I, I was done, I think, like a lot of people. I know some people were very motivated and they did online concerts and they were using the time to practice and all of this. But I think by then I, I thought, oh dear, this is a real problem. My diary is now banished, and that's not unusual, but it was across the sector, but it was still hard and not having anything to work towards. And, you know, a lot of pressure, you're feeling pressured personally as well as professionally. And, um, and you know, I actually, I didn't, I, I'd stopped playing the piano. Uh, I, I, after that piece, I, so in a way, and I don't, I don't think I played the piano for about three months. I just couldn't face it. I think my motivation was shot. Uh, so in a way, I, when I came to write that piece, it was so, I sort of felt like it was a bit of an ending because it, 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 I, I couldn't see a way out by then. Uh, and that's why it ends rather a down i think it, it it ends in a in a very subdued way and it's something that i think a lot of people missed but it, it you know I, what it's about really is it's about what we've lost and it was so beautifully captured in that video who again have not met i didn't meet anybody didn't meet any of the dancers and musicians anybody the whole thing was just done separately um, and you know, they, they, what they did and I talked, but I did talk with them and I talked with the director and, um, uh, and, and a lot of the people who were creating that. And I'd said, you know, this is, 
it, it, there's a lot of fun and games in this piece, but ultimately it's about the fact that we can't do any of this anymore and we can't get together and have a jolly and we can't dance and we can't hug and all these sorts of things. And that's why that last image where they actually can't touch and they go their separate ways, I think is so affecting. Uh, it's interesting to hear the, the context of you writing it. And that was the reason for asking, because actually for me, when I watched it, it was, there was a, um, it seemed to combine musically and in terms of dance, in terms of video, it seemed to combine both excitement being reunited with friends, even, you know, I know one or two people uh, amongst the players uh, and and also sort of being reunited with this perception of what the summer will be like, framed by the proms. Um, and there was one particular shot where the dancers are looking at the backdrop. Um, and I think it's the last few bars before the choir comes in, the, the, the BBC Singers comes in. Uh, which is possibly the most painful part for me. That's the bit whenever I watch it, I just sob. appreciate that it's 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 partly visuals and music but uh, to, to hear that it was written so quickly is is both remarkable and also vaguely annoying because that suggests <laughs> that that you know you are a fast worker and obviously very able and I just hate that I really hate that <laughs> yes but John I didn't write any of the tunes they're all Beethoven's yeah, tunes yeah, so I didn't have when, any trouble no, there but you did <laughs> <laughs> but what you do, what I what I do notice in it is that there is an enormous amount of detail for every single player, which which means that when it comes to recording it in isolation, I mean I realise that essentially every player is is in their own recording studio, uh, which is what they're submitting. So they're submitting their own discrete track. But but it's still. I mean, did you? Did you deliberately set out to provide loads and loads of detail in order to keep people occupied? Or that's what just... I did. Yeah. So, so that's what, one of the things that I always take pride in, in a way, is that whenever I'm writing or arranging anything, uh, I want everybody to have interesting parts uh, if it's for a, an ensemble. And, um, and that means that doesn't mean that they're hard. It just means that they're always... Um, they've always got something good to do because people can easily switch off, particularly British musicians who are some of the best sight readers in the world. We, you know, we learn things very, very quickly. Uh, and if you're, if, if a part is dull, then you, the player might switch off. There's this very funny expression um, you might've heard where um, a lot of, so a lot of film music is often orchestral film music is often quite bland uh, in terms of the, the the textures because there's no point writing something detailed and complicated because people are going to be talking over it, shouting over it, going to be explosions and all the rest of it. So very often, uh, uh, orchestral film music can be um, quite dull and quite easy to play because also you've got to perform it really, you know, just like that. It could also be really dull to listen to. Well, that's that's this is another story. Anyway, um, but one of the things that's that's a, that's a gag amongst musicians is that you know if you get there, there are often times where you get bar after bar of of semi breathes, so just a single note in a bar, 
just that single note. And they're often called golden eggs because it means that you're basically <laughs> you're getting paid just just to play a long note. And um, and for me, I just think no way, no way. And if I and so I might start out writing something like that, and then I'll think, okay, well that's the right note. But let's give it some rhythm, or let's give it something that undulates, or something that's got that's got much more than just a, a single note. And and then and that that's that's the art of of orchestration, really, uh, because when you look at any of the the great orchestrations of the past, all the parts are interesting. They or everything um, in any in any style actually, and that goes right back to to Bach and all the way through to well, you mentioned Bartok, of course. I mean, Bartok scores are extraordinary. They're just so deep in the string quartets. My God, you know, it's fantastic. So, you know, they're, they're, it, yeah, yeah. Make the parts interesting and you, actually you'll get the players on your side because they know that you're not patronising them. Oh, so actually this is all part of a grand strategy. It's not, it's not only about money. It's not only about celebrating the past. It's also about getting the, getting the talent on side so that you can make them do whatever you want. I get it. I get it. Yeah, it's manipulation. <laughs> fine, fine. Uh, I'm so. This is the really embarrassing thing. I have uh, three minutes left before I go to a meeting where I'm talking oh. uh, talking about things with other people, uh, but it's not an interview and it's not something I especially want to go to. But okay. um, there's one other thing to ask you, which is just uh, what what are you most proud of with this Gershwin album? I think what I'm most proud of is the fact that we have created something that I think is new with these songs, which is that we're using a, a combination of jazz style, which is the, the harmony and the rhythm and the melodic licks and riffs of jazz. But then I'm mixing that with uh, the classical background, the classical style, the classical way that we play to, to sort of go somewhere in between that, that sort of sweet spot where we're trying to find, in a way that Gershwin did his with his own notated music, is that he was combining um, popular and jazz sounds with classical structure and classical harmony, and and also with that sort of emotional core that you get with the classical repertoire. And so, with the a lot of these songs, um, some of them may well have been originally rather light and i've gone for something that's much more um uh, you know melancholic perhaps or or lonely or something that's got more drive and a bit more harmonic um rub to it uh, and so you know gershwin songs have been performed and arranged a huge amount over the years and classical musicians i think they very often make them sound more along the late romantics style you know the rachmaninoff kind of sound world um, and jazz musicians bring them right up into a sort of um, uh, that that kind of much more tight knit jazz, um, slightly biting sound. And I think, well, is there a way of trying to meet in the middle? And I think that that's what we've done. But particularly with the fact that I've got two players who are able to play in that genre really, really well. Um, I mean, Kyle is a, actually plays in a in a in a dance group orchestra that um that plays a lot of that music from that period um and so he's very okay with it and, and peter is, is as well and so it's 
it's we, we, I think it's it's a new approach to to Gershwin's music and not just Gershwin because as I say we want to explore lots more of this repertoire.